You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. This week sees an unexpected shift in my experience of isolation. The birdsong remains, but it's underpinned now by a chillier air, and in southeast London at least, mildly disappointing cloud cover. In addition, I've come to realise just how adjusted I feel to our restricted freedoms, so much so that I was surprised to discover I was pondering the extent to which I'd be quite happy to continue living this kind of life in the future. Not the threat of infection, nor a damaged economy, nor the hardship that some are having to suffer, but the slower pace, the connection with nature, the more attentive listening to conversation, the opportunity to respond not to society's expectations, but an instinctive understanding of what our energy levels are and where our focus instinctively rests. The other thought that flashed into my mind this week was about compassion. It's week five for most, for those of us who benefited from a media industry-driven trial week of isolation. It's actually week six. The first flushes of heightened empathy and compassion now seem like both a distant memory and an embarrassing moment where we overly shared our emotions. I've stopped leaving the metaphorical kitchen bake on the doorstep of someone I perceive to be in need, that gesture now feels unnecessary, redundant, embarrassing and possibly a little bit old time. Am I losing that spirit of compassion we all experienced weeks back that we hoped was here to stay and would change society forever? I am reminded of these thoughts listening back to a conversation I had with Baroque and classical cellist Ruth Phillips earlier this week. Ruth is one of an array of tutors participating in The Exhale an online retreat that offers a holistic approach to supporting and nurturing the isolated musician, both professional and amateur. It starts on the 27th of April and runs until the 10th of May. Visit the-exhale.com to sign up. I can't recommend it enough. It looks fantastic. Find out more about why in the conversation with Ruth that follows. One that contains the playing of Andras Schiff, haunting Armenian folk music and a ravishing excerpt from the Peter Sellers production of Handel's Theodora. It's a conversation that is generous in spirit and, I'm speaking for myself here, incredibly nurturing. For about 10 years now, uh, I've been working with people who, string players essentially, who suffer from stage fright and tension problems, mostly, but anybody. Um, working with the breath and mindfulness, um, yoga pretty much changed my life, as did, as did mindfulness. So um, I run workshops and, and uh, do individual coaching and alongside my playing career which obviously doesn't exist at the moment um so many things already there i should have told you that that the podcast is essentially a series of follow-up conversations um uh, follow-up questions rather so there are so many things there already that i'm fascinated by <coughs> i think it's really important to nail the key message for this which is around the exhale can you you're, yeah. you're yeah. taking part in the exhale can you yeah. can you tell me something about that yeah, um, well, uh, Gwendolyn Mason is a sort of uh, champion of bringing together uh, a group of extraordinary people um, to do a completely different thing than what we planned um, 
if I think if ever there was a time to breathe out, this is this is it. And it, obviously the the workshop, the course will not be anything like it would have been. And um, I think it's uh, going to be an extraordinary opportunity for people to dip into various um, various techniques, various approaches to actually bizarrely at this time really learn to breathe out, to release to take time, to be in the moment, all the things that I think so many classical musicians really don't allow themselves in not just a fast-paced life, but in bodies that are tense. We've never really learned to move efficiently. We haven't really learned to let go. Mostly we learn how to control. And I think uh, what Gwendolyn's put together is just magnificent and a real testament to what we are all able to do in this extraordinary moment in time. I think um, it's a, a, a great opportunity. She has, uh, she and I have spoken uh, a few days ago. I got the impression from her that it's sort of, uh, the, the broad idea is about taking a holistic approach to playing and being a musician. Yeah. And and that that extends to, as you say, breathing as well as technique and um, as far as, eating as well and exercise presumably and rest and what have you Uh, it seemed uh like a really obvious thing uh and i Mm. don't say that to to uh diminish its impact but why is that approach not adopted already do you think um it's funny i've just been doing a survey for an article that i'm writing for the strad on uh, wellness in musicians and i've been quite surprised by the answers it seems to me to be that until now, these things have been very separate. You go to college and yes, you get your Alexander lessons and you can do your, you can do your sort of simulated performance thing or whatever they're doing. So the, I think there's definitely an effort and there's also people working with um, mental health and obviously there's an effort to bring these elements into education. But as far as I can see, what has been missing until now is that everything is part of everything else. We don't learn, we don't have an Alexander lesson and then learn to bow in a completely different way. We don't do yoga and then uh, shift in a completely unnatural, with a completely unnatural movement. They're not separate. So I think what's really new and what's really beautiful about what Gwendolyn's doing, which I think is now quite a movement, she's a pioneer, obviously, and um, is to bring these things together and make sure that we that we learn to play our instruments and to make music and to give performances with all these things integrated and not just add-ons. You know, you know. I don't know whether you ever, we used to say, oh, you, you learn the piece, you learn the notes, and then you add the music. Yes, yes, okay. I do remember that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so I've learned the notes, now I, so what am I going to do with them? It's a bit like that with you learn the notes, then you add the music. Now we're sort of adding a bit of, alexander or yoga or breath or anything and i think this is very different this is absolutely going right back to the the source of how we learn um how we practice uh, so that we practice really with all those things integrated into our approach um, which i think is a very exciting moment in time i think there really is a movement now to for this kind of integration to take place having been quite separate what has powered that mo- that movement do you think Oh, that's a good. Well, one of the things that has changed is that people have started talking about um, things like stage fright and tension and injury, because those subjects were very taboo. That may well be because it was quite a male-dominated uh, profession, and most of the teachers at that time. And I'm talking, you know, a couple of generations back, probably. But we carry these messages on. I think, where I don't. This isn't against male, but obviously. <laughs> There was quite a, a, a lot of pride, I think, in um, in the profession. And you don't really talk about go to your colleagues and say, look, I'm, I'm really shitting myself. <laughs> I, I don't want to go on stage. What do I do? Or do you take beta blockers? Or So I think that the discussion was opened um, possibly a good decade ago. Um, and so people started talking about it. And so... Once people started talking about it, then people started to realise that there were there are ways. There are definitely ways. I'm a big believer in the stage fright does absolutely not have to exist, not for anybody. I do not believe that it's a disease 
and they certainly can't catch it. No. Uh, um, it's a very, it was a very, it's a very odd thing that I know that when I started off in the profession, like I was playing with, you know, big symphony orchestras or the London Sinfonietta or something, those were possibly the days when maybe in a section you'd have 10% women and 90% men. And now it's possibly the opposite. It's quite interesting. So, you know, everybody's talking about their feelings because they're all girls. <laughs> and I think that's changed a lot. I think that's changed the, the, the discussion. And now I think these these subjects are open pretty much to everybody. I don't I, I don't know many people who don't feel able to talk about those things now, which is great. Uh, you said to me earlier on that uh, yoga had changed your life. Uh, yeah, but how so? I mean, that that's just that's a that's a statement that begs to be unpacked. Um, okay. where, <laughs> when unpacking, when did that yeah. happen? When did that happen? And where were you? And and what happened? Well, I had an injury. Um, I was down at Prussia Cove playing Brahms quartets, and I suddenly couldn't play, and I had a frozen shoulder, as many musicians do. And the doctor told me that I would never play the cello again which was a very interesting moment in time because I sort of had to ask myself, did I want to play the cello? Which was the first time I'd ever asked myself that. I suppose I'd been about 29 by then. So I, the answer was yes, which surprised me. It was quite fun. And then I went, I was living in Brighton and I was incredibly lucky to go to Peter Blackaby, who is now a very well-known teacher, class in, in, in Brighton. And there was a moment, there was just this incredible moment where he put his hand on my lower back and my whole back released. But not, it was this, I just understood that movement happens on release. It was just this big understanding that we don't make movement, we don't control movement, that it's actually something that comes from release. And uh, I don't, I, what can you say about those? aha moments. It was just one of those. So I then went and studied with him. Well, I did study with him. I went to his class. And um, then uh, my friend Jane, with whom I work, she's a yoga teacher and a cellist, uh, Jane Fenton. Uh, she also did his training. So we worked together. And his particular kind of yoga is is um, Scaravelli yoga, which Scaravelli nuka sals and many, many musicians. And so there's this lovely musical connection and it's, it's very much not about pulling or stretching or pushing. It's very much about going with gravity, releasing through the breath. And it's, so it's, it's a specific approach to yoga that changed my life, not any old yoga. So does but that, this that is unpack? <laughs> yes, it does. I hadn't appreciated. Uh, I think what you're, I think what you're sort of saying is that this had this work had already been done, but it probably wasn't very widely known because you talk about Casals experiencing yeah, I mean, it too. Scaravelli was well. Scaravelli was. Uh, I think she she studied in India, and I don't actually know offhand the history, but yeah, I think it, it's a certain. There are many approaches to yoga, so um, I think we we. It depends who we hear things from, doesn't it? You know, I, I, I had Peter there who was just the right person at the right time in the right voice that I could understand. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm interested because when I met my, excuse me, when I met my partner about 20 years ago, he uh, used to get shiatsu therapy from uh, a friend of his who he knew from his days working on Phantom of the Opera. And uh, he introduced me to her, a lovely lady called Debbie Moon, uh, who has a great name. And mm -hmm. uh, I had one treatment from her. And I remember coming home. She was in Ladywell, so a few, year, a few miles away from where I live now. And um, I remember coming home and sitting at the piano keyboard and suddenly realising... I was able to sight read a whole load of music that I hadn't been able to sight read yeah. before. And it was, it was about sight reading that it really, that it really hit home because I remember 
uh, in that moment, I remember thinking, yes, as a as a teenager when I was learning the piano, actually, I struggled when things moved quite fast, and I didn't understand why, and it was because my entire arm was was tense. Um, mm. And actually, what she had done was she had completely she completely relaxed me and I hadn't really yeah. I, I never appreciated that 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 would be a consequence your particular line of work which is, is is about breathing and the impact that breathing has on playing can you tell me something about that where does where does that sit in your practice as a musician um yeah there are there are two aspects really one is the one is the physical aspect um and the other one is more the sort of mindfulness which I would also say add a spiritual aspect So the physical aspect mostly for me is how the breath moves the body so that as we breathe in and our rib cage expands, our arms can float really naturally away from the body. Um, And as we breathe out, they can fall back, fall back towards. And that is pretty much the seed of the movement of bowing. So I think it's not... I never teach people to, you know, breathe in when they do a down bow and breathe out when they do an up. It's not that at all. But the practice of integrating the feeling of following the breath um, is really helpful for me, first of all, in getting very present in the body, because I think a lot of our stage fright issues come from the fact that we're actually in our heads and not actually centered in our bodies. So it actually brings us into the body, into the whole body, because I work with you know breathing in the belly and also in the, how the legs respond and how the rotations of the arms and even the legs and the how the breath actually does really um, is sort of the, the 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 seed of most movement. In fact, we can find uh, natural movement uh, echoed in the breath, and it's a it's a great teacher. So I it also sort of takes it away from us our ego and our control. This is my movement. Oh, look at how well I do this. It is how beautifully I made that movement. And it sort of takes it away from all of that and, and and hands it over to, in a, in a funny way, a sort of greater, a greater force and somebody, certainly some, not somebody, but something or whatever, uh, much wiser and much more efficient than our minds and our, that makes sense yes it does uh, it makes me it makes me then wonder whether that as a result of that having a change in you and 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 having a change in others that you work with whether that also means it changes the way that you listen to other musicians as well yeah very good point very good point because i i think that does then lead into the more mindful aspect of it um about listening to others i've just been doing an amazing um course i'm in the middle of it with david cates or cats i'm not sure how you pronounce who who's written a book on listening with a whole body and he's also part of the exhale so he's an incredible person he's um feldenkrais teacher and he does also talk about um waking up the whole body to listen and the skin and everything it's extraordinary and again our ears are sort of placed on our heads so we we do tend to listen with our minds and our heads a lot um so i think yes and um certainly we listen with much less judgment and we listen to what arises uh and we observe it instead of always trying to control it. i often use the um example of a tennis player who who will prepare his stroke but then he does not run with the ball and place the ball in the court where he wants it and bounce it up as high as he wants it and put a spin on it it's done He has to let it go and then just be sort of primed for the return. So in a state of great um, aliveness, but not control. And I think that play between the the actual movement that we set in motion, the ability to, and that also goes for sound. So we set a sound in motion and we follow it and we pick it up, but we don't. So that's why the breath is such a beautiful thing, because when, for example, I'll give the example of... um, uh, when you do very slow, controlled breathing, when you're doing um, yoga practice, you, you can do bre- these breath exercises. That's a bit like us doing very slow, long, slow bows, which is very good practice. Um, but it's not how we play because we never, ever play with an e- we, nothing natural has an even bow speed or an, e- uh, an equal, con- uh, an even contact point. Nothing natural is like that. Nothing natural is anything but curved 
and changing all the time. So all these practices are great, but then we have to let them go, like the breath. Then we let the breath go and we breathe naturally. And so for me, it's just a constant teacher, really. And then the mindfulness aspect has been very helpful in in uh, just allowing allowing sound to arise spontaneously and not constantly planning what kind of sound we want to make and then trying to interfere with it. So the relationship that we have with our mind and what's happening is pretty key also in, in being able to be on stage and share what we love with people. Um, so those those two aspects really have become sort of very key to um, the work that I do. And uh, it's very nice to have a teacher that's always there called the breath. <laughs> uh, it's interesting hearing you talking about that because it, it, it reminds me of uh, a similar sort of change that I've had as an audience member. Uh, mm. This came from training as a coach, I think, and sort of mm. learning more about myself and, uh, and I remember going to hear some Marla at the Albert Hall. Not the greatest location to hear Marla, I don't think. But um, I do remember sitting in the auditorium and thinking, I've got a programme on my lap, but I don't actually care what's written in it. Because actually, really, what I want to know is how is this complex music that Marla has written, what impact is it having on me in the moment? Mm. And as soon as I had that one experience... Mm-hmm. then I found it quite liberating and uh, and it became quite addictive because it, it was almost as though I didn't really care about history. I, I, love, I love the history. I love, the, I love looking under the bonnet. I love all of the detail. Yeah. But, the, but the magic of it for me is what is this piece of art doing for me in the moment? And, and since then... That that sort of had a knock-on effect for that. That's then yeah. made me look at, you know, critics, for example. And I'm not going to get sucked into a discussion about whether <laughs> critics are valuable or not. But but whether you know, how does that change of perspective? What change does that yeah. have on on their work? What change does that have on those who say, well? And I hear this quite a lot. Classical music is quite stuffy. People are frightened of classical music, blah, blah, mm. blah. And I just think, well, actually, that's kind of a specious argument because for me, I just, I don't really care what you play. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't really care what the programme is. I just want you to connect with me. And actually that yeah. connection requires me to be in the moment. So I, I see yeah. I see why we've ended up talking to each other. <laughs> That's a fantastic point, and I'm really glad you made it because, and I think that's what the exhale really is all about, is allowing, and and for me, I mean, everybody has their way in, I think, but for me, if you sit, if somebody comes on stage and they breathe and they take the time to be present with themselves and with the audience through what we what can we relate to we can relate to the breath everybody can relate to it it's a it's a unifier not a separator and if that person does take that time and then immediately we can have a connection i don't know whether you've ever had the i once had a very famous cellist who i have great respect for he hurtled onto the stage sat down and started playing and i said hang on i'm not ready you haven't invited me in to your space yes you know? yes i agree so, and i think the breath is one of those things that really does allow us to make that connection and, and what you said about and that if the music is breathing we can breathe with it that's mm. full stop doesn't matter what music it is I, uh, I, you, like you, I don't care either you remind me of um uh, and here is another link between us which we will get on to uh but i went to a cello competition in armenia uh, a couple of years ago and this was soon after I had gone self-employed and so that I spent a lot of time in my own head because I was self-employed. Uh, and there was one particular competitor who his performance started just as he walked onto the stage. That was the only way I could describe it. He, he had this remarkable energy. He was probably 19 or 20, um, Danish, American, and his name escapes me now, but he had... He had a remarkable energy. It was almost terrifying. And it wasn't that he was hurtling onto the stage. It wasn't wasn't that there was speed. It was just that he was right in it, right before he sat down. 
and mm-hmm. and as I say, it was almost it was utterly captivating and compelling, mm-hmm. um, and also terrifying. And and mm-hmm. that that to me is um, that's live performance, really. Yeah, and we're missing it terribly. Yes. Tell me about the impact of the lockdown on you. Um, There's a lot of Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got a nine-year-old son and he's, gosh, it's really hard. You know, he hasn't seen a friend for 30 days and he may not see another friend for another few months. That's really hard. So his friends are called Ron, uh, Harry and Hermione and he's got Harry Potter on a drip read by Stephen Fry. So we had we also got... So the sound is a funny thing in our house at home because my husband hums. I mean, because we we're just thrown together, aren't we? We've got no escape. <laughs> so my husband hums a sort of uh, listen with mother and Carmen, but with the wrong notes. Oh, so, dear. Oh, dear. Somewhere in that. <laughs> so he's not a professional <laughs> musician <laughs> then. <laughs> he's actually a painter. He's a fantastic oh, right, okay. musician, actually. Oh, right. But it doesn't quite come out. I know he can hear it inside. So, <laughs> that doesn't um, make it okay. <laughs> yesterday, I had a huge bust up with my, not bust up, but a bit, bit of a row with my son because I said, I want to listen to Mozart. <laughs> I don't like stupid classical music. So he likes somebody called Jewel, I think, killed his wife. So we're up against that kind of sound, sound in the house. So um, I think I creep off and listen to things on my own, really. And when this first happened, um, I luckily Harry Potter films are very long, so I can have a bit of like two hours, 40 minutes to myself. It's about the length of Theodora, actually. The other night I just went off and I just I just actually listened to it twice through and just sobbed. I think it's it, sometimes I don't want to listen to music because it's actually too painful. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's an odd thing, music in our house. We don't. Um, I've got to fight for have a, to have a bit more music in the house right now. I know I can feel I need it, and I'm not ha- I'm not accepting no mum anymore. <laughs> I, I love the fact that you're using Harry Potter as a way of ring fencing some listening time. I think that's I think that's a good strategy. I think that's very bold. Um, what is it about uh, Theodora that makes you sob? Uh, well, it was I I heard I think it was about that same time as I had the injury that I mentioned before, and was thinking that I might never play the cello again at that point. Um, and I went to Glyndebourne, obviously. I lived down the road from Glyndebourne. I went to Glyndebourne and heard uh, Lorraine hunt Leibson doing Theodora, which I think probably changed a lot of lives. It was... I uh, So in that performance, I sobbed from the first note till the last. 
it was extraordinary experience. But what I, I later then did Theodora with the same production with Peter Sellers at Glyndebourne, the touring opera. Uh, and I was doing the continuo with my continuo. And it was like being in prayer every night. I, I can't actually really describe it. Um, and I had a conversation with Peter Sellers about that first experience, um, about how much I, I could, I'd never cried so much in music in my life, but it was different crying and I couldn't really figure out why, what it was. And we came to this understanding that it was the, it was tears of release. It's not tears of my pain or your pain or even the world's pain, but it was just release. It, I, it's, it was extraordinary. And every night it was extraordinary. I listen, when I listened to it the other day, uh, if you play it now, I'll probably start crying. It, it just does it. You know, it's so, what is it? I can't, I can't actually tell you what it is, but it's somehow bigger than anything. Does um, that, does that, person. does that make it exhausting? No, actually, it's a good question. Good questions, aren't they? Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's the opposite. It was, well, it was exhausting in the way that you're exhausted in a very positive a draining perhaps okay but also so nourishing so at the end of theodore i mean we did it with emmanuel hayim with um with the touring opera and it was very slow it was a lot of it was very slow so it was very long i think it was about four hours oh my god oh my god or <laughs> well, i do tend to exaggerate so it's probably three um <laughs> okay. but, you know you'd probably bombed up the motorway to somewhere and then played and then had to bomb back <laughs> Um, and, uh, but no, it was both, you ju I just felt very quiet afterwards, actually. I really did feel like it was like being in, I mean, I'm not religious, but I, I do feel that music has a very spiritual aspect. Uh, was, it, was this to do with, uh, solely because of the experience of playing the music or was it also to do with what is going on in the opera? Um, I think... I think it was everything. Uh, it was an extraordinary production. I think it was an ex a, a completely historic production. I mean, anybody who saw it, I think, would agree that it, it, the production, Peter Sellers is a Buddhist. And um, it was so, the production was all about compassion. And it just, it just glowed through the whole production. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, and so I think it was the production a lot in in the performance of Huntley. It was it was her because she she got that she just channeled that whole thing about compassion through. Um, and then obviously it's extraordinary music. I think it's one of those things when when certain elements just come together, you know, a genius work of art. Uh, in my opinion, genius director, and it I think it just these magical things happen and it doesn't happen in every concert but it does happen sometimes and I think that's for me why we do it so just in case that might happen we need to be open to that possibility in our humble way what a lovely memory to have that's that's a, yeah. a very special memory to have mm. uh you also have oh, no before I move on to the next thing you you tell me what effect the music has on you when you listen to it. Tell me how that has supported you right now. Ah, yes. Because um, you talk about compassion, which is quite, you know, yeah. I don't know Theodora at all, but, but you talk about compassion. I think for me, I mean, this time we're very, very privileged here. We're in the beautiful, beautiful Provencal countryside. We're not on lockdown in an apartment in Paris with five screaming children or... Um, we don't have relatives that are ill in hospital that we can't see, so we're in a very privileged position. But it is, it does still have its challenges, some of which have been quite a, a great deal amount of grief for me. So it's hard to talk about those things in a way. You say, well, I don't have any right to feel grief because, you know, look at what's happening in the world. And, and yet we do have to honour what we're going through personally if uh, we're to join what again going back to the exhale and this kind of work it, to to join the um sense of there being something going on that is of importance i hope we can't know yet but i really really hope that that is about compassion and kindness and about being together and i hope that music might play a part in that and particularly as we both discussed the live experience of music that we will, having taken a breath, having slowed down, 
will be maybe able to come back to the stage in a different a different sense of um, openness maybe and so I think what's happening there's a lot of a lot of kindness going on there's a lot of people giving away a lot of things a lot of saying a lot of people saying well I've got nothing they've got nothing financially but we've got something to give whether it's you know a vegetable basket for your neighbor or you know you're giving lessons online for free um, I think a lot of us have just you know we we need to give we're musicians we need to give we need to share and so um, I think the music listening to music like that reminds me of of that power and, and particularly music that is a touches on that thing that compassion not a time to stop it's a time to slow down and re-evaluate and come back changed hopefully hopefully it, changed. i find that interesting surely before i started this interview with you i um i've been writing an article about beethoven and um i mean it wasn't you know it wasn't in any way <laughs> uh edifying really it was sort of transcribing an interview that had already happened on air um but I had an exchange with a colleague uh, because I wanted to clarify. Um, I wanted to clarify what the recording was that was made in the interview, and because I transcribed at speed, and because because I just wanted to make sure I got the detail right, I emailed the colleague and said, um, "I just want to check. This is the recording that was that was used." And and the response that I got back on email, obviously, we're all under pressure and we're all working in isolation. But the response I got back on email was, "Yes, I thought that was very clear." And. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, oh, well, thanks. Um, yeah. And I dealt with it. I dealt with it in an extremely good-humoured way because I totally understand mm. that we're all under pressure. But also, mm. at the same time, I thought now is the time for all of us yeah. to be more aware of what we're doing. And mm. and if we can't do it now, <laughs> you yeah. know, if if we can't do it now, exactly at what point will we start doing it? Um, and I'm I'm reminded of that really because of what you're saying um, that there is uh, this period of time feels like a period of compassion, uh, and that that is all I I get that compassion is not necessarily going to going to deal with a, a deadly virus, but actually um, it's the very least that we can do at the moment. Compassion, I think. Mm. Um, you also suggested in your uh, message to me uh, some Armenian music played on an instrument that I can't pronounce. Duduk. Thank you. Well, I, I, I think it's pronounced Duduk, but I might, it might be Duduk. Um, well, no, I, well, I'm, I'm going to go with whatever you feel most comfortable saying. So that's that's great.
um, I I listened to that last night in the bath, and I was transported back to my trip to Yerevan, um, mm. which I recall now as being a very special trip because I felt as though I was going to an entirely different musical land. Um, what effect does does that music have on you? Ah, yeah, I've never been to I've never been to Armenia, so um, but well, I do it. I do my yoga practice to that music, and um, I was thinking about it this morning. After the yoga practice, I do a, something called um, coherent breathing, which is just a very very slow breathing. And I think what it what it it's so essential. It's a read with breath blowing, blowing through it. It's so simple and so, uh, I think it just reminds me that we, you know, that's the basic thing that we are all the sort of read with breath blowing through it. It doesn't sound too flaky and, and rubbish, but um, that's kind of <laughs> what it feels like to me. I know it probably does sound a bit flaky and rubbish, but... Um, Not at all. Not at all. I, I also have travelled a lot and... And love all all kinds of music and particularly African music I'm crazy about and traveled a lot in India and um, so it it does remind me that not to make the separation between different kinds of musics and the other thing is that when when I when I teach I really um, I really emphasize that our body is our instrument and somehow this very simple flute with breath is this very simple relationship really reminds me of that essential thing. I hear when I hear the instrument is I hear a human voice and I mm. hear a melody that sort of is, there's I want to say meanders but there is a connotation with the word meanders it feels as though it's incredibly well structured very human um very assertive uh and phenomenally reassuring yeah it's a nice word yeah and why is it reassuring then to you uh, because it's simple. I don't mean yeah. the melody is simple mm-hmm. necessarily, but that yeah. the orchestration. Of, there's a drone, isn't there? There's a. Mm-hmm. There are two mm-hmm. instruments on on the album that you shared with me, um, and so there's there's a drone and essentially a pedal note that goes all the way through it, which is just, yeah. which creates a sort well, of a sense of tension because it's sort yeah. of. I listen to it thinking I'm, I. How much further will this get pulled? It's like two pieces of thread being pulled apart, yeah. Uh, yeah. and yet they're still connected, and that's terribly, um, that's terribly reassuring. I think. It's interesting you say that because I think that that is beautifully expressed, and um, it's something we lose when we play our classical music. Mm. We lose that sense of that beautiful, extraordinary tension of pulling apart. It's a lovely expression of pulling apart of two threads, and when we play scales. You know, we need to find that. We need to re, and that's again the the, the breath and the, the tension and the release that's in that in our very own musical culture. We we lose it. We just say, oh, it's, you know, this is especially the the French with their solfege. It's all just very mechanical. And sorry, <laughs> um, and, and that's and that is, and and we lose that extraordinary pull between um, elements, which. 
as you say in that music is very clear and simply expressed increasingly <laughs> increasingly during this period i find myself returning to um modal music it's modal music that i respond to because mm. um it it reminds me of a life that i haven't lived which is really weird um but you know it started with percy granger that was the yeah, in this series of podcasts i i landed on green bushes by percy granger and of course that's english folk music uh, and mm. then vaughan williams and and actually yeah. every time i hit modal music i think okay my heart, I can feel my heart rate drop, um, and that—that's—that's that's really interesting to me. Mm. Um, do you think that's? Do you, do you think that's because it's you can hear it fresh because it's not our musical culture, or it's that it has a diff, literally is a different beast? Uh, or oh, you're good. <laughs> um, I think it's. What is it? There's something universal about it. There's a universality about the way in which the melody progresses, uh, which is not, which hasn't, this is going to sound very odd when I say this, it's not been constructed in the way that, say, Beethoven or Mozart, who are obviously brilliant, um, have constructed a melody. Uh, it has been, It has been honed over the years. And so, and so, it has that sort of, it has that historicalness about it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm I saying? I do really understand what you mean. But I also think that we've forgotten how to listen to our own music like that. I think we don't, we don't bring that same openness to the way we listen to sounds just arising. And if you take a harmonic minor scale, for example. I mean, that is absolutely full of historic yes. and. <laughs> essential and the elements in that are so natural and so not constructed by our culture I, I really believe that our culture has drawn upon those elements that pre-existed and that so when we go back to our scale whether it's a modal scale or a harmonic minor scale or a major scale I still think those things are based on those same elements that have been out there for all time that's what I think uh, how did you come to the music? How were you introduced to it? To the Armenian music? Mu- to- oh, it was uh, introduced to me by my colleague Jane, who's uh, I've now mentioned various times. She's a uh, she's principal was principal cellist in Blindbourne and Garsington Opera. So we played for thirty years together, and we run our retreats together. She's uh, trained with Pete Blackaby as a yoga teacher as well. So. She introduced it to me. She played it on a retreat while we were doing some breathing stuff, and I just, I just absolutely loved it. So I, I stole it. <laughs> uh, the other thing that you've recommended is uh, the music of Andras Schiff, some Bach. Can you tell mm. me what music that is? Uh, with the Allemands and the Courant, or the particular Courant from the Partitas, first Partita, and got anything. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's Andras Schief first. Just after dinner, just like that. As, and then 
I played with COE for quite a long time and we did lots of tours with him, which was an amazing experience. But of all the recordings ever, I have, I must have listened to it a million times. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> so the weird thing is that um, my son takes the piss out of me. Oh, mum, you love Bach. How old is your son? Um, nine. <laughs> okay, well, there's time yet. There's time. <laughs> yeah. I didn't love Bach when I was nine, actually. No, not did I. I. Brahms. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting. I, I think with, with Andra Schiff, for me, there, there are various elements which make it extraordinary. One is that I mentioned just a while back that sound, if we could listen in a way that sound arises spontaneously and disappears, there's a sense of wonder. Um, and I feel that he has that sense of wonder. Every time it sounds different, even though it's the same recording I'm listening to, every time it's a different piece of music, he will pick out the, the, a simple bass line with the wonder of a child, with it's so, and you hear it, you hear this wonder. And um, I feel of all performers that I've ever seen or heard, he is really channeling something that is, I mean, Bach anyway is like, well, he's kind of my God, really. So, <laughs> oh, you too. The hands of Andras Schiff is divine. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Emergency Classical Music Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to the episode, please consider supporting the podcast series for as little as $2 a month. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. <laughs>